Hello and welcome to Amplify. That's music by Anne Clear, who together with Karen Power and Laura Watson joined CMC director Yvonne Ferguson in a conversation about the Sounding the Feminist Collective. We also have a conversation which I recorded with Kira Murphy, who is the research associate with the Sounding the Feminists, and she'll be talking about the collective's project to scope data relating to gender diversity in new music in Ireland. This is our 10th episode of the podcast and on behalf of my colleagues Yvonne and Keith I want to thank everyone who has listened and subscribed. We've received some nice feedback so far and we are really looking forward to bringing out some more episodes in the coming weeks and months. But back to this episode. We wanted to mark International Women's Day in some way so we asked Sounding the Feminists if they would participate in the discussion around gender and new music. CMC is also a partner organisation of the collective and in the conversation which you're about to hear the three members of the Sounding the Feminists working group talked to Yvonne about the collective's background, their goals and activities and future plans. Here it is. Joining us this week are members of the steering group of Sounding the Feminists. We have Anne Clear, composer and assistant professor of music at Music and Media Technologies at Trinity College Dublin and the projects officer for Sounding the Feminists. You're very welcome, Anne. Thanks, Yvonne. And Laura Watson, who's assistant professor of music at the National University Maynooth and who's the education officer on the Sounding the Feminists working group. You're very welcome to CMC, Laura. Thank you, Yvonne. And uh, last but not least, Karen Power as the chair of the Sounding the Feminists Working Group. Karen, thanks for making the time to come in. Laura, um, can I start with you and ask you, why did this movement form? Why did it come about? Well, I suppose the movement dates back to 2016. Um, We saw a response to what had happened at the Abbey Theatre when women hadn't been programmed in, you know, very large numbers. When the National Concert Hall had the festival composing the island, of course, women were featured in the festival. But people noticed that there seemed to be a disparity in terms of maybe how many performances by women composers were included. Um, There was also the question of if you looked at the historical representation of composers from the past that again some of the women composers from Ireland maybe weren't included to the extent that we would have liked. So the idea with Sounding the Feminists was to recognise, you know, small steps that had been made by different organisations, but to try to redress the inequalities that have just become so much part of the music establishment. And the idea was to try and figure out practical ways of bringing more women and their music to the spotlight. And maybe you could just take us back to the core aims of the movement. Uh, at the outset. I suppose a lot of people working in different kinds of music around Ireland, I think we're interested in being a part of this movement. Like at our first public meeting, it wasn't just people from classical and contemporary music, but we had people from popular music, from traditional music, 
what we really wanted to do with that kind of community, music community across Ireland was just open up a dialogue. You know, I think we were quite honest about the at the first meeting that, you know, we don't have all the answers to this. We're just trying to open a space where we can discuss what's happened that isn't so kind of egalitarian and and what we can do uh, to transform that into a more kind of diverse programme of music across Ireland. We've tried to do that in different ways, like mainly, you know, through creating public platforms for these issues to be discussed. We've initiated partnerships with different organisations to work on more specific aims. We've initiated professional development workshops, which really kind of encourage female and non-binary people to apply to more opportunities, because I think something that came up a lot in public meetings and other meetings with partners is that there aren't enough women applying and looking, you know, going and being very confident about seeking out opportunities. So that's something we've really tried to encourage and find ways to uh, improve that situation. It's always an interesting thing to start something. It's, you know, you know that there are going to be challenges. You try and anticipate those challenges in as much as you can. As a working group, we came in uh, guns blazing and we're obviously all voluntary and all I think most people will agree, active in our fields. From the outset, um, as Anne said, we had clear objectives and, and one of those was that we were not interested in just being another collective who took some shots in the dark. We were never aiming for standalone events. We were never aiming for something that was going to make a splash and then disappear. We were always on the slow burner. Things take time to change. You can't change somebody's mind overnight. And so it's been a long game, sometimes longer than any of us really thought about. With any long term approach and with any advocacy or movement, there are certain doors that are very much closed. And that's why the movement is, is forming in the first place. And how have you, I suppose, found that in terms of trying to open doors of big institutions and navigate your way around that for this issue and you know there's a question of funding and uh, um, all the infrastructure that you've had to deal with. One of the things we've realised is that when we're working with people in different institutions that in fact we often have the same goals that a lot of people working in these different organisations want to um, diversify their repertoire as well and to diversify their audiences. So what we have found is that actually it's about building dialogue and building trust with each other. We are all quite new, I suppose, to this type of uh, advocacy work in a sense. So we are learning as we go. One of the things about Sounding the Feminist is that we have sort of shown how doors can be opened, how you can work with people and build communities that perhaps you do didn't realise were there at first and it's about developing these connections. It does take time. As Karen was saying, it's a process that you sort of embed and it gradually builds up. So have you found then in the main that the will is there among a lot of Mm organisations that you speak to with regard to gender balance, but perhaps they're in a position where they need some guidance. Look, we're 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 in a sector where we're all struggling. We're all struggling for air. We're all struggling for time. resources, time. Mm. It's yeah. um, and and so and th- we were very conscious of this. So the last thing we wanted to be was this other uh, weight 
that comes in and says, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And so we've kind of tried to establish it so that it's it's not you need it's like, how can we how can we work together to make this happen? But again, as Laura said, you can't just walk into somewhere and do that. And you can't do it from behind the door. You have to be in the room. You have to. And like that was very, very important to us to sometimes it's very difficult to be in that room. Talking about being inside the room and at the table and having sometimes difficult discussions. But that leads me to to talk a little bit about the partners and um, how important are the partner organizations to, to the movement? They're crucial in in most ways. And I think probably one of the most important partnerships we have is here with CMC in uh, initiating our research project, which was also very much at the heart of our, our aims. I think, you know, starting out, we kind of want to base any advice or recommendations we had on data related to not just who's represented, but how are they represented? The project we have here at CMC is trying to look at data of uh, how commission pieces uh, have been programmed across the island of Ireland over the last 30 years. And we have the very uh, wonderful Kira working on that as a research associate. And we're going to hear from Kira a little bit later on in the podcast in more detail yeah. about the research. So I suppose that would be how we would imagine working with partners, I think, more long term is initiating very specific projects that help us readdress gender balance within music programming in Ireland. And so CMC is kind of like a model for that, I think, of how we'd like to go forward. And then we also have a partnership with the National Concert Hall as well. Picking up on something you said there about who and how is commissioned and who and how is programmed it does lead me to I suppose ask you the the fairly kind of tricky question of the uh, about you know tokenization in programming I mean how how do you productively promote women composers in in programming I mean how how do you go about that? It can be quite a challenge to change practices and norms where organisations want to programme repertoire that's going to draw, you know, wide range of audiences. So um, one of the things we're trying to do with the partnership in the National Concert Hall is a chamber music series every year in which we highlight historical women composers. There are different ways in which you can address this a question of should we just have women composers in their own series? Should we put women composers in context? And I think to be quite honest, it's very difficult to please everybody. For our first series in the National Concert Hall, we had a chamber series that situated women composers historically and stylistically. Um, another approach we could take is that coming back to this idea of how you have to be in the room around the table, we could take the idea that in order to normalize uh, women composers being on the programs, that we actually need a space where at first it's a little bit like a quota that you need to have, say, five or six concerts where it's just women composers. Because what that does is it reminds people of the wealth of women composers that are out there. So, for example, the series this year, we are programming just women composers in that National Concert Hall Chamber series. So again, this is about giving those um, composers the opportunity to be heard. And once we do this, then we can encourage performers when they're presenting what might be considered 
concerts in a more mainstream context to include more work by women composers, not because they're women composers, but because they like and respond to the repertoire. Programming sometimes comes down to relationships as well. And, you know, that artistic directors have relationships or ensembles have relationships with certain composers. And so the commissioning maybe spans two or three pieces or a series of pieces or or that. So I suppose that's a that's a kind of a bigger challenge, really, isn't it? To kind of, you know, these personal relationships about artistic programming to kind of ensure that wonderful works by women or the possibility of commissioning wonderful works by women, that that's kind of in the thinking. I think the only approach that um, we can take um, at this stage is that we try as many approaches as possible and see what the results are. This is a five-year partnership with the NCH. The whole idea is to create something that then simply remains as the norm. And so to do this, we're kind of testing the waters in different different ways. So, for example, moving away from the Chamber Series would be the commissioning strand. And our aim there is to alter the way traditional organizations might think to commission because the world is changing. We're changing. The way we write changes. So the way things get commissioned also needs to be, it needs to be part of that conversation. So we've been working hard to kind of alter what to some people might seem like baby steps, but they're steps. So part of the commissioning strand is a kind of, you know, an application process that then gets put in front of a panel and a kind of where people get to speak about their ideas. Um, And the hope is that at the end of each commissioning process, we don't just get one commissioned piece, but everybody in that panel who are, of course, leading figures in the Irish music sector become aware of at least six new voices our hope is that in 10 years when they go to program, maybe they'll remember one of these six voices. And, and for us, that's a result. If I can come back to what you're saying about the commissioning, Karen, and come to you. And we were talking a little bit about this earlier, about scale, you know, that sometimes the disparity has been the fact that women are receiving commissions for small in terms of duration, in terms of the instrumentation, and that there is this work to do, these steps to reach a stage where women are getting large-scale commissions on big platforms. And repeated performance. Uh, I think this is all part of the the research that we want to see through and publish and find ways to really enact the results of this research too. So I think long-term, that's definitely where I think we're heading. As we said earlier, we kind of want to base any recommendations we have on kind of cold, hard facts. For some people, they don't really see the issue. And this is across the world. I'm not just talking about Ireland. You see a lot of uh, music brochures, say, with pictures of women all over them. And somehow that kind of sells. And then when you look a little bit further into it, you realize, oh, that woman has like a five minute uh, flute solo on a Wednesday lunchtime concert. Um, She might be at the front of the brochure, but she's not main stage Friday night, half hour piece 
good commission fee, good development process. So I think even in looking into commissioning and development opportunities, we also saw that there has been a lot of uh, opportunities for women to develop uh, kind of large scale work, but that work isn't going to production level either. Um, so I guess we're trying to look at all these figures and say, you know, how can we imagine a society where it really is egalitarian and people are getting those opportunities? One of our aims, hopefully, at the end of of maybe the the five year time time period that we're talking about, is hopefully to have an approach to how do you program diversity in music in Ireland? Because that's something, again, we started the conversation saying we have ideas about this. We don't know if we have the solutions. And each uh, organization we've spoken to has very different challenges. So we don't have like five rules that will apply for everyone, but we would like to maybe finish our time with this, with a kind of a, a set of like goals for the future and things that everyone should keep in mind when they're looking at a concert they're programming, a festival they're programming, an exhibition they're putting on, a book they're making, um, a syllabus that they're putting together to teach. Uh, we'd kind of like to have, I suppose, ideas that people can can uh, enact themselves in whatever way they're working within the music sector. So I think that's where we see our kind of long-term presence being felt. And clear, Laura Watson, Karen Power from Sounding the Feminist Working Group. Huge Thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Music by Karen Power, ending that discussion with Sounding the Feminist Working Group members. Finally, we have a conversation with Kira Murphy, who is a research associate with Sounding the Feminists. And she spoke to me about a project to identify and collect data relating to gender diversity in publicly funded financial opportunities for composers across Ireland over the past 30 years. I started by asking her to give me an overview of the project and its aims. This project is intending to give an overview of where we are in terms of gender diversity um, for women's compositional opportunities in order to find out, I suppose, what the data is so that we can create policies and benefit the sector in terms of increasing diversity, in terms of pay, in terms of access and in terms of the kind of establishments and opportunities that are available, publicly funded opportunities for women. Talk to me about a little bit more about the approach to the gathering of data and why the approach is so important to the project. I think there's often an allergy in arts practice to concrete data and that we rely quite a lot on anecdotal evidence and conversations over coffee and stories among ourselves in terms of things like how 
much we're getting paid, what our working conditions are, how the breakdown of awards are being given and things like that. And actually, in order to create concrete policy change and create established equitable practices across the sector, you actually do need concrete data. So the reason that we're engaging in this is to ascertain what the lay of the land has been for the past 30 years. And We've picked 30 years because it is a substantial amount of time and it gives us the opportunity to see where the ebbs and the flows in terms of diversity and equality are. If we know what we're dealing with, then it's something that we can use as a baseline to improve the experiences of women composers and male composers also. And how difficult or otherwise has it been to actually access that data and make sense of that data? Yeah, I mean, it has been quite tricky. There are some challenges that we're facing that my participation in the Waking the Feminist Project didn't throw up in terms of GDPR um, and access to information on composition in terms of how information is stored and gathered and archived for music compositional opportunities. In terms of what we have available to us, we're blessed um, and that I have my temporary home here in CMC Ireland in terms of the composer's database. So that's a wealth of opportunity and a wealth of information for us in terms of what we're engaging in because it gives me a sense, I suppose, of the lay of the land. Broadly speaking, it's been difficult to get the access to the amount of data that we've been looking for in terms of trawling through Arts Council of Ireland and Arts Council of Northern Ireland annual reports. Um, So we've had to build relationships with uh, publicly funded commissioners in order to try and access some of that data. You mentioned Waking the Feminists and your involvement in in that movement. Is this a problem across arts organisations that they don't make enough use of data in order to put forward arguments or to drive policy or change in in whatever be it programming funding gender balance or whatever absolutely a lot of organizations don't even track their awards or their commissions by anything as simple even as like binary gender they don't track it in terms of class socioeconomic background ethnicity international scope anything like that so it's hard to actually keep track of who you're giving money and opportunities to there is also this and this is i suppose anecdotal as well this tendency among um women arts practitioners not to kind of archive as substantially their own work so therefore when you go back to research that there's a dearth of information in terms of what you can access there's a significant amount of public funding going into commissioning and engaging with arts practice so it would make sense that at that level there would be a concrete methodology for data gathering and that those results will be publishable and accessible to researchers in an ongoing way and is this is this changing i mean are are you detecting a, a kind of a change amongst our arts organizations now because I know obviously the past is the past so it's it's very hard to put those data gathering systems in place for things that happened maybe 30 years ago and I guess that's that's a large part of your research in terms of making the sense of that and trying to trying to put a structure on the data but is that changing? I mean, I want to say not really, unfortunately, because I feel that there hasn't been a wide enough engagement with that kind of concrete data gathering. Even going back to my experience with the Waking the Feminist Gender Counts report, which was a substantial project, but it was, you know, broadly undertaken by volunteers with a small but generous grant from the Arts Council. And there are, you know, restrictions to a project like that and what you can engage with. Um, And we did issue some recommendations, some of which have been taken on in very tangible, productive ways and some that haven't. But I think that it's a scope and a funding thing like it is with every arts practice organisation. The Arts Council are understaffed and they're probably underfunded. So engaging, I suppose, with that kind of way of collating and gathering and representing data 
is probably lower down I suppose on the pecking order in terms of priorities but I suppose what I would hope this project would do is to show the importance of data and how we need to have concrete uh, methodologically sound processes for gathering this information because it's inf- it'll inform our policies in terms of pay inform policies in terms of commissioning and granting funding and also in terms of tracing who we give these opportunities to because if you don't know because you're not counting it then it is anecdotal and maybe you can't see that there is kind of a broad inequality in the sector and you know we're hoping that by creating like a baseline um, and to develop a very stringent methodology that that methodology is something then that we can you know provide to the sector as an opportunity to further practice in terms of gathering data across other disciplines just like Waking the Feminists has influenced Sounding the Feminists we're hoping that this more comprehensive project will influence the arts sector more broadly. Absolutely because it's not just relevant to gender diversity and balance it's it could be relevant for a whole range of representation issues and and once you're kind of measuring and tracking where where the funding is going and where the commissions are going that tells you more about how the how the sector is developing or if it needs any particular intervention what's the time frame of this project whereabouts are you in in terms of your research well this is a two-phase project so we're coming to the end of phase one now which was an initial scoping project at the moment we're working on a research proposal in order to try and further phase two of the project which we hope will be a 12 month long full-time investigation into publicly funded compositional opportunities on the island of ireland we're looking at the challenges that we have that have kind of emerged in the scoping project that are kind of informing our information and how we're presenting that proposal and we're hoping that it'll have some success and that we'll be able to take the project to its end point so the phase two project is when you will actually be able to present hard data and statistics because I guess that's what people are most interested in seeing what the breakdown is where the balance are uh, or imbalance or whatever so it's at that point that you'll be able to present facts and figures. Yeah we'd be hoping that at the culmination of the project that we'd be able to present a gender count style report where we can give the lay of the land both in a quantitative and a qualitative way and I don't like mean to bore in terms of like data and statistical um, terms terminology but it's important that you're not just presenting information in its raw form that you're contextualizing it in terms of um, what decade you're in what organizations you're relating to social and economic moments that happen on the island of Ireland that cause fluctuations in arts funding and opportunities and um, things like that there's a sense I suppose emerging from the data now that I'm kind of looking at and it's very raw form that is interesting but this phase is about creating a really concrete methodology so that the presentation um, of our data and of our facts at the end is foolproof in a way and that we can really stand over those. Kira Murphy, ending this episode on Sounding the Feminists. My thanks to Kira for her help in putting this episode together and to Anne Clear, Karen Power and Laura Watson for their contributions earlier. Join us for the next episode, which will be a recording of our live show, which took place at this year's New Music Dublin Festival. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>